Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations with Calvin. Uh, it's the month of June here in the Garden State. I, I never knew why they call New Jersey the Garden State, because there's not a lot of gardens around, but so be it. And I think that's a great trivia question. So this is uh, volume two with Claude Blanc. And, and Claude and I, uh, a month or so ago, we did volume one. And, and I just said to Claude before we went on air, uh, and you know what? Uh, what I said is that this should be a movie. I'm not a screenwriter, but the life you've lived and continue to live is so fascinating. Uh, and we've broken this up into three separate uh, in interviews. Uh, we could go on and on. Uh, but uh, refreshing memories, Claude will do a quick recap. Uh, in volume one, we, we talked about uh, his global early years uh, in Africa, Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, Nepal. Um, today, he's an amazing business consultant. Uh, uh, you know, I kind of extracted uh, that. He's had teams, he's led teams of 300 people in 30 locations, and he's played around with a billion-dollar budget. So, you know, he's quite uh, an amazing businessman, but getting to this point is remarkably interesting. It should be a movie. Uh, so that's what we talked about on our first volume. And uh, today, uh, today uh, is the return to the roots. And, and just looking at some of the things we're going to talk about, so interesting. Uh, it's like I want to yell with a megaphone, get away from TikTok and check this guy out because it's been one hell of a journey. Um, so uh, my monologue is, is now finished. And Claude, uh, take it away. Maybe just refresh a little quick bow and refresh a little bit of what we did last time and now and we will jump into your communal living. Yeah, so last time we spoke a little bit about my, uh, my childhood and, uh, and the weird uh, life I had with one foot in Africa, one foot in France. My parents were, being, uh, were in Africa. Well, my, my father had died when I was a, a child, but uh, my mother remarried, lived there, uh, and... Uh, I spent my life in boarding schools during the winter and in Africa in the summer, and it was very, very disturbing in many ways. So uh, I turned out to be a, a mess as I was growing up in my teenage years and uh, got myself into all kinds of troubles uh, until the day in which uh, I came across the Bhagavad Gita, which is a book of a, a Hindu spirituality that kind of a give me a, a, it was like an epiphany say well if this thing if what this book is talking about is true my life could have a meaning on that inspiration i left uh, to go to india from 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 uh, from france from paris uh, i left to go to india uh, through uh, turkey uh, iran uh, went down to kuwait uh, then uh, pakistan afghanistan uh, back in pakistan india nepal and uh, that journey was like a, a new birth for me. It was like a rebirth, you know. And uh, my guru in, um, uh, in, in, in Nepal told me, look, uh, what you're looking for, you need to go back to your own roots. And my own roots uh, are, uh, were in Christianity, right? So uh, I was born a Christian, even though my family was 
pretty much agnostic and atheist, uh, I, I had been baptized. And so, uh, and so I started looking into it again okay? and eventually found my way back to Europe. Um, and so now here I was uh, reading the Bhagavad Gita on one hand and, and, and the, the Bible and the, the Christian scripture in the other and trying to find the, the meaning of my life, basically, meaning of, uh, of what the heck is going on around me. You know? uh, it took me many different places. Uh, we, uh, we, uh, I traveled uh, from commune to commune and with one commune, uh, I, I went, I ended up in, in Morocco. Uh, we, we were planning on building a village in, in central France, that whole thing fell apart, but then I moved to another commune. And then uh, a friend of mine wanted to go and visit his girlfriend in, in Sweden. So I said, okay, I'll go, I'll go along, I'll go, I'll go with you. We had very little money, but we made it to Stockholm. But by the time we got to Stockholm, we were broke. We had nothing left, right? And so we had to get back home. The, uh, the, the visit with the girlfriend didn't go very well. So uh, here we were stuck in Stockholm and we had to, co to come back to France, right? Uh, hitchhiking going from place to place. And, and one day uh, going in a, in a restaurant, in a, in a, in a coffee shop, uh, going from table to table asking for rides. And one girl there said, oh, come with me. And she brought us to, to her home and said, look, um, here is the refrigerator. Uh, if you want to take a shower, go ahead and take a shower. I'm sorry, I've got to go because I've got some appointments. But when you leave, make sure you, you close the door and not let the, and not let the cat run away. Right? Here we were, we didn't know that, wo that woman from a, a hole in the wall, and she left us in her home. You know, the, the hospitality was amazing. Oh, you know? and, and really, we didn't look very presentable, right? We, we really looked like well, we did need to take that shower, okay? And um, so I had a little Buddha that I had brought back from, from Nepal, so I, uh, uh, that I was carrying with me, and we left it with a little note on the table as a... Uh, to thank her and moved on. But this was an amazing experience that I never forgot. You know, I don't know what happened to that woman, obviously, but it was, um, and, then, and then many other episodes like this happened during that trip. We eventually found our way back to, uh, to, to France. And um, I was, uh, so I was living in the commune at that point. And um, one of the members of that commune was talking about, about his uh, spiritual director who was a, a Benedictine monk in, in Switzerland. And, and so uh, at some point I said, well, why don't we go and see him? Um, because I was interested in finding out more about, uh, about Christianity. And so here we were on our way to, uh, to Switzerland. We arrived in that monastery. Again, we looked like bums, right? Uh, and they opened the door, they look at us and say, what, what do you want? <laughs> and, uh, uh, but they took us in. And for me, it was an amazing experience. It was really a, a, a mystical experience, a, a conversion experience, but my life changed dramatically there. Oh, wow. I had really to reevaluate everything I had done in my life and, and, and refocus. Yeah. So, um, but where do I go from there? That uh, one of the monks there, that, that spiritual director, gave us the name of a group in Paris, uh, a community, and he said, "Well, you should uh, you should get to know them." And so we arrived in, in Paris and uh, met those people, and there were people trying to live a bit on the model of the early Christian communities, you know, uh, but in, in in today's world, and it was pretty attractive. 
but then, you know, I had uh, quite a heavy drug experience in, uh, with me, and I needed to kind of clean up my, my act and clean up, uh, you know, and the best way I found to do, to do that was to um, get a job on a farm as a farm worker. So me and that guy and that friend of mine went to work on a, on a farm. Uh, I, I thought, you know, it was the idyllic view of being in nature. And it, well, really didn't turn out to be exactly that way, right? You spend uh, eight hours behind, uh, behind a tractor with spinning fumes, you know. Uh, you know. But it was, it was a very strong experience. Again, a, a life-changing experience. Found my way back to, uh, to Paris eventually. Um, got various jobs. I was fascinated by Simon Weil, Simon Weil, who is a philosopher, who was living with the working classes, with, with, with the, the, the proletariat. And so I had a, she was a, a philosopher, she was a mystic, but she was also very much engaged socially. And I read her and I kind of wanted to emulate her. And so I got myself a job in a, in a factory, uh, assembling uh, electric engines, electric motors. Uh, for a while, then ended up in other jobs, and ultimately on my way to Italy, to a, a community in in Tuscany, international community of people who were trying to live the gospel, who were trying to live according to the teachings of, of Christ. Uh, what was fascinating there was the 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 fact that it was it was so international. There were people of all cultures, of all backgrounds, really. I remember the, the, in those days, at the same time, there was a guy who was a former Viet Cong, and there was a guy who was a former Marine. And they both had been in Vietnam during the Vietnam War, right? And now we're there together in that, in that school. So, uh, and, and there were many other experiences of that style. Uh, I, I was doing mime, I was a mime. And so I find myself in a, in, a, in a performing group at some point, an international performing group, and started touring all over Europe. You know, uh, in, we, I, 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 I performed at La Scala di, di Milano, uh, I performed in uh, Saltaieri Paris, and, and in many, many other places, and also in, in some uh, fairgrounds uh, that still smelled of manure, you know, in, in some part of, <laughs> of Germany. So it was quite uh, many ups and downs, right? But it was a, a wonderful experience, uh, performing in front of hundreds and thousands of people. Eventually, um, I was offered a job with, um, with, a, with a publishing house, which was, uh, they were looking for somebody to uh, run their beachhead operation that they were starting in, uh, in the US. And I'd never been to the US and I said, well, that's, uh, that's a great opportunity. I'll do that maybe for a few, a few years, you know, uh, and, uh, and see where it leads. And so one day, here I am, I arrived in, in, in New York. Uh, I was staying in Brooklyn and in that, uh, in, uh, in Greenpoint, which was not, uh, to me, it looked like uh, uh, just straight out of West Side Story, you know, with the, 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 the chain link fences and, and so on and so forth. Uh, it was such a different world. Um, I, I, I was living in a community for, for quite a while, but then at some point uh, grew disenchanted with it and left. Uh, and uh, I managed that publishing house for a few years, but then I had to move on. And well, where was I going to move on? I mean, I, well, I knew publishing now a little bit. 
So I saw a job at Yawafa as a assistant uh, uh, purchasing manager with a, a, a professional publishing house, a legal publishing house. I said, so I applied for the job and I did get a job, but it was not assistant purchasing manager. It was assistant to the assistant purchasing manager. So it was pretty low on the totem pole. Right? And I got myself into it completely. Now it was the dawn of the of the PC, so everybody had a PC on their desk, but nobody knew what to do with them. My job was to do estimating. They, they had hundreds of jobs every week, and you had to do estimates to figure out the cost on on those big green ledgers by with a pencil. It was impossible to to keep up, right? And we had those computers, so I taught myself how to program. I developed uh, uh, macros uh, on uh, what, what was then the Lotus 1, 2, 3, right, uh, uh, before. And um, I developed a completely uh, turnkey operation, which all of a sudden allowed us to do accurate um, cost analysis. And our prices started dropping and dropping because our suppliers realized that we now had the means to analyze every job one by one, and so I became a hero. You know, I became the you know, the, uh, the the PC guru. Yeah. So uh, I'll just jump in. But you you you're now doing what you're doing without like college, basically. You're yeah, doing yeah. what you're doing because you lived life to its fullest. Right, right. I mean, uh, let me tell you my my travels. Uh, in, uh, in the Far East and in, in, in Asia was the best education I could ever had. Right? Um, and I did, take, I, I did take all the classes I needed to take along the way. Yeah? So I, I did take some accounting, some business uh, uh, courses and so on and so forth as I needed them. Right. So I, I, I was uh, not a didact, right? I, I taught myself how to program as well. Right, so that's how I, I, I programmed those uh, those turnkey um, uh, estimating programs. Right, so I became a hero now yeah, in that first company, um, and um, saved the company really millions of dollars. Then I got a phone call. Thompson Professional Publishing was looking for somebody to uh, head their production uh, in one of their subsidiaries in uh, Rochester, New York. And so I applied for the job and I got a job. And there uh, I started doing the same thing, but also developed synergy. And then I realized that within uh, uh, Thompson, there were half a dozen companies that were doing the same thing. You know, they were in the same business. And so I saw that there was tremendous potential economies of scales, even though they, they kept on operating separately. So I started really shaking the, the apple cart, you know, making a lot of noise. One, one day, my uh, my boss, who was the CFO of that subsidiary, came to me and said, corporate doesn't know if they want to hire you or fire you. <laughs> so I said, well, can I talk to them? So the following week, uh, I spoke to the, uh, the corporate CFO and explained to him what I saw as a great potential for great uh, cost savings and, and, and greater efficiency. So he looked at me and said, okay, go out there and do it. And so here I was you know, synergizing across uh, half a dozen companies, and we were very, very successful. Uh, it, it was a, an appeal battle with some people in the company, but we were very successful. And then the, the CEO of, of uh, Thompson Professional Publishing became the CEO of Thompson Newspapers. 
Thompson newspapers was 169 uh, uh, business units, 169 newspapers all across North America, wow. US and Canada, right? And so uh, he called me and said, what you've done in Thompson Professional Publishing, I want you to come and do it at the Thompson newspapers. So here I was, it was no longer six business units, it was 169 business units, right? And uh, he knew nothing about the newspaper industry. I knew nothing about the newspaper industry. None of the people he brought with him knew anything about the newspaper industry. And so we were really like a blank slate and we could, we could really think out of the box. And we reinvented the, uh, the, the newspaper group uh, uh, concept. Uh, we were uh, bringing the, uh, the, those papers by market, um, consolidating everything we could and keeping just the publisher in front of the, uh, in front of the public, in front of the, in front of the market, right? And so again, tremendous economies of scales. The, the rest of the industry, you know, Gannett and, and others, looked at us and said, those guys don't know what they're doing. They're going to fall flat on their face. Well, five years later, this had become the new business model and everybody was, was imitating what, what we had done. Wow. They moved on from there. So you know, in the meanwhile, I had met my wife. And, um, and we were having kids. I mean, we, I have four daughters who are now uh, grown. They are all adults. Um, one is a lawyer in, in London. One is a, is a nurse in, in New Jersey. The other one is, a, is a, uh, an engineer, uh, environmental engineer. And uh, the fourth one uh, studied anthropology. Um, so, you know, they are in, in various different uh, sectors. So I met my wife. And um, that would be a whole story by itself, but um, we, won't, we won't go in, into that today. And, um, and I was climbing the corporate ladder, right? So by then we had moved to, to Connecticut. We were living in Fairfield County, in, in, in Richfield, a beautiful place. Uh, and uh, then at some point, uh, I got a call from a headhunter uh, Quebecor Printing, which was the second largest printing conglomerate at the time, was looking for a head of global procurement, a, a corporate head of global procurement. So um, I went for the interview and I was offered a fabulous job uh, out of Montreal. And uh, so I went to my boss at, at uh, Thompson Newspapers because I really loved the guy. I really loved working for him. And I said, uh, Dick, um, this is what happened. I've been, you know, they offered me this. What, what should I do about it? He said, look, we're selling this place because the Thompson newspapers was being sold, right? We, we're selling this place and those guys are growing like crazy. So it's, it's a no brainer, go for it. And let's, uh, let's go and have a dinner with our wife and celebrate. And so I took the job. And here I was now in charge of buying 1 million tons of paper a year. That was $1 billion worth of paper, $250 million of ink. You know, it was a really big operation. We had 110 major plants, major plants all over the world. Number one in Canada, number two in the US, number one in Europe, growing in Asia, growing in Latin America. It, it was a really huge operation. And I was, I was on the road all the time. Um, on, on an airplane all the time, uh, flying the Concorde to, to, to Paris on occasion as well. Because the Concorde was still, was still flying back then. Uh, but it was also an empty life. I mean, I felt, you know, when I look at the, my pictures back then, I was not happy. I was making a lot of money, but uh, it, it was really um, using me up you know, from, from the inside, you know. 
uh, and all my spiritual aspirations, they, they were kind of on the back burner, right? There was not much of that, you know, I was just, uh, you know, the world is my oyster and I own it, and I own it right? But um, it was not, it was not joyful, you know? And, uh, <clears throat> but eventually um, I, uh, this ended, and uh, because there were some, also some um, ethical issues that I was uncomfortable with, and so you know, I decided to move on. And well, what am I going to do? I do the paper business. So I became a paper broker, buying and selling paper on the world stage, and that went for a while. Um, I had found a fabulous niche. I was selling um, straw, uh, straw wrap, the paper that goes around drinking straws. It, that paper is actually cigarette paper. And, and, and I had found a mill in the UK it was unbelievably cheap and I could beat everybody on price, right? And so I was doing pretty well for a while until the day in which I got a phone call from the UK, that mill was in the UK, and the guy said, we got a problem. I said, oh, what's our problem? We probably missed a shipment. And that stuff was coming in by, by container. Um, we we went bankrupt. We we shut down the machines, and so here I was um, with clients everywhere, but no product, and nobody would sell me at that same price. And actually, nobody would sell me. Period, because uh, you know everybody else was accounted for, right? So um, say, so what, what do I do next? And I read an, an article on business coaching, and I said, well, that sounds that sounds interesting. So that was in 2004. Uh, I, uh, 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 business coaching was really a new concept. Coaching was a new concept in business. And so uh, I said, well, I know business. I can do this. So I got myself certified with a group called the Professional Business Coach Alliance and uh, put up my sign, blog, uh, blog, business coach, and, um, and just uh, move on from there. And we will, uh, I guess, uh, continue this. We'll continue that next stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple of, uh, um, as I kind of, I mean, it, it, it's a wow that you got into these industries and learned what, the, it, it's a wow. Uh, and yes, you took the courses as you needed them, but uh, what, you know, I mean, managing billion-dollar budgets, buying billions of dollars worth of something—it's uh, uh, um, uh, it, so interesting. It's interesting also, uh, just environmentally. You know, uh, you know, we're doing away with you know single-use plastics. The world is so the the paper for the straws. You know, that's obsolete. It's just a changing world. I don't even want to get into that. that right. Right. So maybe I can tell you something about why, I mean, what drove me. Okay. Um, early on, when I was a young man, I saw a movie, uh, Andrei Rublev, uh, which was, uh, which was a, a movie by Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky is a Russian director who passed away a long time ago. Uh, Tarkovsky was still living in the Soviet Union at the time, right? He had not yet uh, escaped. And he, he, he did that movie, which was about a monk 
who lived during the tough period when the, the, the Mongols were around and, 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 the, the, noble, and the noble Russians were exploiting the populations. And it was really an awful time in, in, in Russia. And this was like, from Tarkovsky's perspective, it was a cry for freedom in the Soviet environment. But he, but he used the analogy, an uh, historical analogy. So there was a the story of that uh, uh, monk, Andrei Rublev, who um, had decided that he, he would stop painting. He was, a, he was an icon painting, a, pa a painter, but he had decided to stop painting because he was so depressed for everything that was going on. Now, one day, a bunch of nobles go into a village that has been ravaged by the Mughal, and they are looking for the bell maker because they are building a new cathedral and they, want, and they are looking for the bell maker. And all they find is a little boy on, on a street corner crying, and everybody seems to be dead in that, in that town. So I say, Where is the bell maker? And the boys say, Well, the bell maker was my father, but, they, but he died. I say, Oh, gee, what are we going to do? But he, gave, he told me all his secrets. I can, I can build your, your bell. Yeah. Oh. And so they look at him and say, you're just a boy. You know, if you fail, we'll kill you. Oh, I know all my secrets. I know all the secrets. My father. And he goes there and uh, has hundreds of people working for him, much older than him. You know, and he is managing that whole process. You know, and eventually the bell gets built and the bell sounds beautifully. And Andrei Rublev, the painter, sees that. And the kid uh, bursts in, 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 starts crying and saying, my father never told me his secrets. I just reinvented them as I went. And so Andrei Rublev, as a consequence, starts painting again and, and paints a very famous icon, which is the, the icon of the Trinity. Right? That movie impressed me tremendously because I thought, you know, nothing is impossible. You know, never say no. And gosh, so many times. So when I was offered the job of, of running Thompson Newspapers Procurement Operation, I got, I got itchy all over my body, right? I was, because I was nervous, but I was not gonna say no. I, I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna figure it out. You know? Then when I went to Quebecor and it was you know, one million tons of paper, oh. wow. Yeah, I'm figure it out. I'm going to learn. I'm going to make it. You know, and uh, so never say no. Now some people say, "Oh, you've got to know how to say no." I I don't know how to say no. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, to me, so interesting. It's always not so. Moving. You know, in a small way, um, I take which you just said, "Never say no." In in a small way, uh, two and a half years ago, Rutgers University. Uh, a professor there came to me and asked me if I'd like to teach. Uh, it's like a coaching. I, I taught career explorations at, at Rutgers. I was already 74. And now they're asking me to begin a whole new career of teaching young people, smart kids uh, about navigating careers. Um, and my first knee jerk reaction is to say no. I mean, how come I'm 74 years old? I should be. I should be in a rocking chair on my front porch drinking prune juice, not getting in front of young people and teaching them. Uh, but subconsciously, subliminally, and with the support and the urging of my family, I didn't say no. I went ahead and became 
teacher. So it's that same spirit that you just said, you never say no. Uh, so, uh, by the way, I have one uh, off topic, I guess, to wrap this session uh, up. Uh, it's one of my Calvin questions. Actually, you don't have to answer it. You can or you can't. It doesn't make any difference, but it's an interesting question. So here it, here it goes, Claude. Um, before I leave this earth, I won't be satisfied until I blank. And that's a great question for you because you've done it all. Well, I just want to leave this earth having made it just a little bit better. You know, uh, and hopefully not worse. <laughs> yes, yes. And your coaching is such a give back thing. You know, I think that, um, that improvement happens step by step. So I, I hope that I will be a step forward in the, in the evolution of, uh, of humanity. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a great way to do a wrap for this volume two of Claude Blanc. Uh, and uh, we're gonna sign off. Don't leave when we stop recording. I will do a little wrap, but uh, for now, um, Again, I thank you, Claude. It, thank it's you, so, Gavin. so interesting. I, I, you know, I, it's not that I identify with it. Uh, I actually, some of the things you've done, I would have liked to have done uh, back in the back in the sixties. Uh, I would have loved, but I didn't, and that's another story. But anyway, thank you for your thank passion you, Gavin. and and sharing your time with us, and and you'll be back soon enough. So thank you, Claude. Thank you. I'm going to sign off. Thanks.